Hello and welcome to the Pastcast. I'm Calum Henderson. On this week's episode, I'm speaking with Robert Kershaw, historian and author of multiple books, the most recent of which is Dunkirk in 1940, The German View of Dunkirk. As its title suggests, Kershaw takes a fresh look at one of the most significant events in 20th century British history, but this time from the perspective of the victorious German army. As he argues, the Germans saw Dunkirk as a wholly unexpected achievement, having managed to reach the sea in May 1940 in fewer weeks than it took their forefathers not to succeed in the four years of the First World War. You can read an exclusive extract from the book in the latest issue of Military History Matters magazine, which is out now in the UK and next month in the US. It's also available to read in full on the past website, and please visit the link in the description for more details. But before you do that, here's my conversation with Robert. Okay, well, Bob, uh, thanks very much for joining me um, this afternoon. Uh, so the miracle of Dunkirk, um, it's been discussed and analysed a lot, at least in British history, um, in the 80 years since it took place. Uh, why did you feel the need to look at it again? Um, in many ways, it was accidental because um, as I was leaving the army, I was asked to prepare a battlefield tour of the Dunkirk area. I was serving at a NATO headquarters at the time. And because I speak and read German, um, they asked me to look at the German point of view, um, which was easy to do at the time because um, I could actually task people to get me the relevant documentation from the Bundesarchive. And we needed to get down to that sort of detail, really looking at post-action reports. Anyway, to cut a very long story short, that um, particular exercise was postponed because of pressure of diplomatic and other events. And um, all the paperwork I held on to, and I basically had it in my attic for about 15 plus years. Uh, because I was writing other books, I decided to go uh, become a professional writer once I left the army. And then when the <clears throat> pandemic struck, I wasn't able to travel anywhere for research. And I thought, well, uh, here's an option. All this stuff was in cardboard boxes in the attic. I got it down and I had a look. Um, So I wasn't, um, I didn't have a particular holy grail to follow. I simply had some basic questions that I had at the time of the um, uh, battlefield tour. So it's less about myth busting, uh, more about why did they do that? Because in military terms, um, a number of the actions that were conducted struck me as being illogical. And so I was curious to know at ground level how they came to those decisions. And the best way of doing that is looking at the um, post-combat reports, which are the nearest you can get to the actual incident. Um, And then as I delved into this... um, it raised certain questions that I thought, well, this doesn't actually correspond to the accepted view. Not that I particularly majored on that view, um, because when you write a book, you tend to ignore what everybody else has written and try and look at a new angle. But I I felt this didn't actually fit in with um, what I what I was seeing on TV more often, TV documentaries, which can be a bit shallow. And I thought, well, this stuff is way off, way off uh, beam, i.e. the uh, TV documentaries. So um, I came up with 
my own ideas based on the research, what I thought the answers to those questions I was posing uh, were. Very good. Yeah, I imagine we'll get onto some of those um, uh, operate, uh, sort of events that you know weren't maybe as they described in some documentaries. First of all, I was I was quite interested in your description of the German army in in nineteen forty, um, which, as you say, it was a mix of you know different sort of groups within the army. It was like great war veterans, uh, conscripts from around nineteen thirty five, and then fairly new recruits who'd had basically some minimal training. Yeah, how how would you sort of characterize this army and its sort of attitude at that time? Well, I think this is the only time the German army during the war had a sharing of a common view um, about why they were fighting the war and how it should be prosecuted. And um, I identified, for example, one of the divisions that came up against the uh, Dunkirk perimeter. A third of the force were actually First World War veterans. Another third had been conscripted um, after 1935 uh, in Hitler's Reich, and the final third were only eight-week wonders who'd done basic training and were immediately fed into the battle. So that is quite a mix. After the invasion of Russia, the whole tenor and character of the German army changes, primarily because the older element either were killed or fell out for physical and um, psychological reasons so that the preponderance of new recruits that are coming into the German army after 1941, following the horrific casualties on the Eastern Front, they are, for the majority part, um, schooled in National Socialism. In other words, they went to school and were taught um, in Hitler's Germany as distinct from many of the, their predecessors who were in action in 1940, uh, there was more of a mix. And the common thing that the common thread is um, they felt that uh, the Treaty of Versailles had been unjust. Particularly those living in the Ruhr had um, faced a fairly brutal French occupation, which was very unpopular. Reparations um, added to Germany's economic woes. And the Nazis, of course, came up with the stab in the back um, theory that uh, they hadn't actually lost the First World War. They were stabbed in the back by the politicians. So all that joined together for the one and only time to create a fairly motivated force that felt they were fighting for a, a, a just cause. Um, that doesn't happen uh, later in the war because by 1941, the excesses of the Eastern Front were becoming more um, uh, apparent. Uh, the uh, forced, uh, the genocide of the Jews and so on. And of course, the German soldiers are not only seeing very unpleasant things, they, en they are engaging in them as well. The Wehrmacht is very much complicit in, in, in a number of war crimes. Now, that was not the case so much in 1940. There had been excesses in Poland in 1939, and there were a few in 1940, but nothing like the scale of, of what was to follow. So this was a very motivated army. I suppose it was something like akin to the um, feeling in Israel prior to the 67 war, when they had this unexpected victory like the Germans did in France. And then the soldiers are lionized and idealized as being, you know, the best the nation 
um, had to offer and, and achieved a great deal. The other thing motivating the soldiers um, was a feeling that they were avenging their fathers, many of whom had died in the First World War. Um, one of the quotes I mentioned in the book is um, a German soldier who said, if only all those graves in Ypres, because they were fighting through the uh, memorial places, if only all those graves could be opened and they could come down and see this. And in fact, um, by the end of the campaign, of course, the, the German soldiers were very full of themselves. And in fact, the First World War um, veterans became a little sniffy about this because these new soldiers were saying, well, actually, we achieved in less weeks what you couldn't do in years. So um, there was there there was definitely a, a dichotomy of views um, then starting to emerge. Yeah, and um, so sort of keeping on the theme of the, the sort of German perspective, obviously that's what the book is largely about. Um, you, you also talk about the, the assumptions that the Germans make about their opponents, um, the French and the Belgians and stuff like that. What were they and did they turn out to be illusionary or not? Well, well, they are quite interesting in that one of the things you do in the military world is you identify what the enemy is and what he's about. <clears throat> and the chap who was responsible for reporting on enemy forces for the German high command was an Oberst Ulrich List. And he came up with an assessment of what the enemy might be like. And um, it is interesting because he, he felt that the Belgians, um, they had this um, social divide between the Walloons and Flemings, which indeed is the case today, which he felt that sort of division in their social fabric would weaken them. He also felt that um, they were... Um, going to be defensive um, uh, like the French. And, and they not only did they dress like the French, they probably would fight like the French. Um, the French, they he felt, were verging on being slightly indisciplined, um, lacking motivation. They would fought, fight um, according to First World War defensive um, principles. But of course, they had an incredibly strong army and they are the equivalent of what we would regard um, America versus China, for example, should that ever happen. It, it had that sort of, uh, the, the, the French in Europe were, were, were the strongest force um, in the, in the civilised West um, at that time. And then, um, interestingly enough, he felt they were poor, poorly trained generally, but that their best units were in northwest France. Um, that is relevant for the um, Dunkirk um, story because um, when they were trapped in the um, pocket that occurred when the Panzers reached the coast, of course, their best units, uh, many of them were uh, around Dunkirk. And so the quality of resistance, uh, in fact, increased. And then the British, Liss had was an artillery officer and had spent some time uh, on an exchange posting with the British Royal Artillery on Salisbury Plain, where he developed um, his ideas about the British as well. And he felt that um, there were a lot of veterans from imperial wars in the British ranks, that they the NCOs were extremely good and that the Brits were highly motivated, would be prepared to accept heavy casualties because they believed um, in their cause. 
but he thought the officers were fairly useless and he thought that the territorial army uh, would not give a particularly good account of itself. And when you put all that together, that com- you, you have a number of assumptions about what the quality of the opposition is going to be. Uh, in the event, when you look at the um, post-combat reports, there's a very interesting one, uh, very detailed, from General Krantz, who was the commander of the 18th Infantry Division. And he says, of all the three, and he, he fought against um, the, the Dutch, the Belgians, the French and the English, and he felt you couldn't differentiate between any of them. They were all fairly um, mediocre. Um, but you've got to bear in mind, this is with the benefit of hindsight, having achieved this stunning victory. And he uh, identified the Belgians, if any, as being the most formidable adversaries that the division came up against. So I think they did rather underestimate the Belgians. And historically, we have since, because... At no stage do the Belgians give up until the end. They've got nowhere else to go. They fought their way across the country, fighting pretty fierce rearguards and caused the Germans a lot of casualties. So they regarded the Germans uh, with some, uh, the Belgians with with some respect. Um, So far as the British were concerned, they were right about the officers and the NCOs, and they were perhaps wrong about the Territorial Army because the Territorial Army units did give a very good account of themselves uh, in various places and and caused them a lot of grief. They were broadly correct um, about the French, in particular their lack of motivation. So you put all that together, um, they made some mistakes, but actually it didn't actually impact on the overall result. Yes, uh, so perhaps a chance to talk a bit more about the, the events themselves and uh, the, some of the things that you said about um, history getting it wrong. So you say that so despite the German advance towards the coast, um, the Hitler and the sort of senior generals begin to lose control of the momentum. It seems to be sort of going a bit too quickly and even successfully for them. Would that be a sort of fair description? Yes, I think this campaign was dem- demonstrating... Um, that technology was influencing both operations and and lower-level tactics in a big way. And you've got to bear in mind that the senior level of command in the German army is is essentially First World War veterans, people that had fought um, during uh, a static period of warfare, primarily on the Western Front. And so when... um, the Panzer Vanguard made such good progress across France, there were concerns. And this was also shared by many of the soldiers, and you pick this up from um, uh, diary accounts, saying it can't be this easy. Uh, the French have got something up their sleeves, and we're going to have a repeat of the Marne. If you remember uh, the Schlieffen plan approaching um, Paris and then suddenly Foch, appears and with a French counteroffensive and, and, and the German uh, plan comes to naught. So there was always a, a, a fear that, that the Allies had something up their sleeve that they weren't declaring. But as we know, in hindsight, um, that was not the case. So that caused a lot of nervousness um, by the senior commanders at the breathtaking progress of the Panzer Vanguard, which was pushing ever deeper into France and exposing its flanks. 
as as a consequence, of course. And then this gap was opening up between the um, Panzer motorized units and, and the footborne infantry. And the point to bear in mind on that is that the um, majority of the um, infantry, um, uh, the majority of the German army was both horse-drawn and footborne of something like 150 um, units that take part in the campaign. Only 16 are panzer and motorised. So the Germans are getting to grips with this new, if you like, tactical technology or, 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 its, or its practical application to tactics. And there, there were nerves because um, Guderian gets across the Meuse unexpectedly quickly and pushes on without waiting for support. And that causes jitters. And then the next river line, I think it's the Sambre, he does the same again. He gets across and pushes on with apparently insufficient support. And von uh, Kluger, the uh, commander of the uh, Panzer forces with um, Army Group A, actually goes to his headquarters and castigates him for, if you like, exceeding his authority. Guderian is rather expecting a pat on the back for doing so well, immediately turns around and offers his resignation, which causes a bit of a, um, a, a, a crisis that is only solved when von Rundstedt, the um, Heroes Gruppe A commander, steps in and stops it. Um, but this is an indication of, of, of the fears. And then a few days later, um, Rommel's 7th Panzer Division is hit in the flank by a couple of um, weak uh, British tank regiments. And Rommel uh, pastes the in picture up on his maps and feels he's being attacked by five British divisions. So it's that sort of nervousness. And eventually von Rundstedt um, stops the Panzer advance because he wants the infantry to catch up. And um, Hitler doesn't actually um, institute the, the um, Hawk order, he, but he, he confirms it. And at the same time, von Brautich, the um, senior commander of the German army, had intervened to transfer the um, panzer forces sensibly to Army Group B under von Bock to sort out the um, pocket that they had created. Um, but this was done without Hitler's knowledge and he, of course, felt his authority was being questioned. And that caused yet another um, tea storm, if you like, uh, at, at, at the senior level. So it, in that sense, the German high command is losing control of Blitzkrieg because this campaign is going at such a fast pace that they're not keeping up with what needs to be done, in particular Guderian then reaches the coast at the mouth of the River Somme and um, he has not got a plan and nobody had thought of the plan. He was there and the rest of the army has still yet to catch up whilst at the same time they've got this enormous um, open flank, if you will, along the line of the River Somme, which they're filling with infantry units as, as they catch up. So they were very nervous about what was being achieved. It was way beyond their comprehension that it would all be done in such a short time.
Yes, and sort of talking about the evacuation itself from Dunkirk, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of overblown in some ways. They talk about a miracle and everything like that. I was, I was thinking that, you know, some some things helped the Allies, the poor weather, which really sort of hindered the Luftwaffe and the Kriegsmarine. As you say, the the, the sinking of the RMS Lancastria, it's there, it's there, only, the Germans only really sort of big hit, and it sort of demonstrates that it could have been a lot worse for the Allies. Um, yes. But it is miraculous in some ways, isn't it? The, the miracle, if you like, is that, bearing in mind what the Channel is like, um, generally, quite stormy, unpredictable, and if you remember the uh, enormous tension there was prior to the D-Day decision uh, coming back uh, because of the uncertainties of the weather, um, it, it was very surprising at that time of year that the waters were uh, so placid. Um, the other advantage, of course, was that the weather got worse as the Germans approached the coast, and that um, really negated much of the effectiveness of the Luftwaffe, because during the nine-day evasion, um, the weather was only sufficient for two and a half day. Uh, the nine-day evacuation, the weather was only sufficient for two and a half days of those nine days for effective Luftwaffe attacks. So it is miraculous in that sense. Um, but what you've got to bear in mind is this is the story that Churchill wants to sell uh, after the war when he writes the um, his multi-volume history of the Second World War. And it is also a factor of very effective British government propaganda at the time that is demonstrating to the Americans that despite this catastrophic defeat, which is what it was, um, their spirits are still up and, and they intend to resist. So the story then enters Hollywood and um, uh, Pinewood Studios. You get the... Um, I think it's 1958 uh, version, the John Mills black and white movie on Dunkirk, which is still very atmospheric and, and quite accurate in, in what it is portraying. But it adds to this, um, uh, you know, the Archangel Gable has saved the British Army and we and we are very, very lucky. Um, it's got worse since. I think the um, films that um, demonstrate this have become a little over... Um, sentimental, I think, uh, and still propagate this um, patriotic view. Um, it's not a myth so much. I mean, this is what um, a lot of people um, tend to talk about in relation to this book. I'm, I'm not busting myths. I'm just asking, I think, some serious questions. How on earth did they get away with it? Um, it seems to be a miracle, but miracles normally uh, are based on some subjective and objective facts. That's very true. So, uh, you know, as you sort of say, for the German military, it was Dunkirk was merely sort of a signpost on the road to Paris. It wasn't quite significant yes. for them. I mean, if you put it in the context of who was there, there were 10 German divisions around the pocket uh, when they finally collapsed it. Probably there were only about another seven operating in the vicinity or so which is 17 divisions of 150 German divisions or so in this, in this campaign. And the point of the campaign is not to see off 10 British divisions at Dunkirk. They had already destroyed 62 Allied divisions and badly mauled another 17. 
So 10 British divisions getting out over the water is pretty small fry indeed. And then the other point is, so what if they've gone? All their equipment is lying in ruins on these beaches. And when they get back to England, they're going to have to surrender, aren't they? Mm. And this is, this is really the prevailing view of the German soldier. And then they're obviously looking at the next phase of the campaign is, well, France hasn't been beaten yet. We've got to finish this off. So they all move on. Yes, no, that's true as well. The the expectation, certainly in the British side as well, that they were probably going to, it was just going to be, you know, Dunkirk was the beginning of a sort of later capitulation, I guess, by the British. Well, I mean, in terms of its impact on the war, there's no doubt that if those several hundred thousand um, British troops had had to surrender, they would have been a hostage to fortune. It would have been very difficult to continue the war when the British public has got half its menfolk still in France. And if you, I can't remember what the figures are, I think it's about 200,000, maybe 250,000. Multiply that by 10, each family member having a mother, a father and relatives, that is an enormous impact on the uh, social fabric of the British Isles at the time. And uh, it would not have been easy for Churchill to say, well, actually, we're going to carry on. Yeah, it would, it would have been a very grim situation, I think, had it gone differently. Um, yes. What I tend to do, though, is get away from what might have been yes. in history. Um, I, I'm asking questions, why did that happen? And it's it doesn't take, you know, um, much for a, um, a, a correspondent or a reviewer to say, well, this is myth-busting. It's not myth-busting. It's all about why did this apparently illogical thing happen? Yeah. No, no, I find that your article very, I've only read the article, I find it very interesting and certainly clear a lot up for me and um, I'm sure the book does the same. So thank you very much, Robert. Thank you. You're very welcome. That was Robert Kershaw speaking to me there. And don't forget that you can read his article in the latest issue of Military History Matters magazine, as well as online at the past website. And Robert's book, Dunkirchen 1940, The German View of Dunkirk which is published by Osprey, is also available to buy via the link in the description. That's all for this week. Thanks again to my guest, Robert Kershaw, for joining me, and to you for listening. We hope you'll join us again soon.